Well, I hope that again you're in your Bibles to John chapter 8. We continue this morning in our series called Sin No More. In a message entitled Convinced and Convicted, part 2. Let us begin by remembering that we began in John 8 with using this account of a woman caught in the act of adultery as a template illustration for our study of sin. A moment in time where we find within the scripture that sin becomes the issue amongst many different individuals. There in the scenario we have Jesus himself that is teaching in the temple. You have crowds that have gathered to listen to him. You have the religious leaders who have brought a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery before him. And we've been looking at the issue of sin from those different perspectives. As we conclude or come to the end of this series, we find ourselves now looking at it from the perspective of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Wanting to be proactive in our endeavor and our objective to sin no more, we are looking to prepare ourselves, to go equip ourselves for that moment in time that temptation stands at our door and begins to knock and, to, and tries to lead us into sin, away from God, and back into the old nature, the old life that God has released us from. Obviously, if that woman could have avoided this scenario altogether, she would have done so. But caught in the act, we find a woman now condemned before all. And Jesus Christ extending grace to her, knowing that the condemnation that was placed upon her would soon be placed upon him. That being said, I again want to stress the initiative that we have embarked upon in our series, and that is to prepare ourselves for that moment that sin presents itself. Last week, we looked to convince you that we no longer have to sin, that we have been released from that old life. I wanted to convince you by looking at Romans 6 that you cannot, you need not, you must not, and you better not continue in sin as a believer in Jesus Christ. Today I want to move to the second portion, and that is to teach you and to understand what it means to be convicted. Convicted of sin. Allowing that conviction to have its perfect work in you in assisting you in avoiding that temptation or resisting that temptation altogether. To keep you from sinning. That when sin presents itself, you allow that conviction to have its perfect work within you, helping you to resist the temptation that is looking to lead you away from what God would have for you. Let us begin by looking at the issue of conviction from a perspective and a scripture that I believe introduces not only the element of conviction itself, but also the instrument of conviction, which is the Holy Spirit. So we find ourselves moving eight chapters in the Gospel of John to chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning. And we're going to be exploring this characteristic of Christianity called conviction. It is a supernatural characteristic. It is uh, originate and derives outside of ourselves, but reigns and works within inside of ourselves. Verse 4 of chapter 16. 
But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world of concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you will have seen me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Throughout the New Testament, we read of the aspect of conviction working in the life of the believer pre and post their conversion to Christ. I believe conviction is one of the elements of Christianity that very few Christians truly understand and appreciate. It is that sense of warning that God gives us. It's that sense of reality that God gives us through the Holy Spirit to show us where we actually stand with God and how to prevent us from sinning after we have come to God. It is again a work of the Holy Spirit in the person's life. So what is conviction? Again, we are introduced to that word here in John's Gospel. And the meaning of conviction as a legal term is being found guilty. Now that's the way we use it very readily in our society today. When one is convicted, we then know that they have been brought before a court, they have gone through a trial, and they have been found guilty by a jury. Evidence has been presented, arguments have been made, and the conclusion was that that individual was found guilty. In a common usage of the word conviction, it means being persuaded or convinced. Now this is working inside of you. So think of the aspect of being found guilty and then realize that it's to one who has been persuaded or convinced of that guilt. That's what conviction is as we are being drawn to God through Christ. As the Father is reeling us in, we begin to experience conviction in our heart where the Holy Spirit persuades us convinces us that we are guilty before a holy, righteous God. It is always used as an antecedent to repentance. It is the first step that leads a person to repentance in their life. In theology, it means being condemned at the bar of one's own conscience as a sinner in view of the law of God. So we are being persuaded... We are being convinced by this conviction. We have now been found guilty. And in the theological realm of this word, we are now brought to the conclusion of that guilt, which is condemnation before a holy God. That is the work of conviction in the life of an individual prior to their coming to Jesus Christ. It is a work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, and we'll look at the means of those convictions and how that conviction works in just a moment. Again, 
when the conviction has its perfect work, that condemnation is revealed to that individual who stands before a holy God, and a understanding of the weight of the wrath of God is accompanied in that condemnation. Meaning, I have nowhere to go. I cannot deal with the sin in my life in and of myself. There is no pardon for this sin. There is no good work that I can do to overcome the wrong that I have committed. There is nothing before God that allows me to find innocence or to be justified in and of myself. I am in a desperate, hopeless situation before God. Now, that backdrop, that reality would create an incredible opportunity to understand the validity and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So a person brought to that place, persuaded and convinced, found guilty, condemned, understanding the weight of the wrath of God by the Holy Spirit, then finds themselves in a hopeless situation And the bad news has been realized. It's now a reality in that person's life. They then turn to Jesus and discover a Savior in him. That's the good news. As one said, the conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God as the means which convinces the sinner and proves him the truth of his sins, Christ's righteousness and God's judgment. Now where does this convincing take place within the human being? Now this is a fascinating question. Throughout the Bible, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians, it's used 18 times, Paul touches on the concept of the conscience of an individual. Now that's something that you and I may not consider on a daily basis, the reality of the conscience of the individual. I believe that a person's ability to understand that they have a conscience is one of the greatest evidence of creation and fall that I can find. A conscience is the arena in which conviction works. It is that place, that human capacity, that allows us to reason and to know what is right and what is wrong. As one wrote about it, he said, it is the human capacity to reflect upon the degree to which one behavior has been conformed to moral norms. For the believers, these norms should be those established by God. But where did the conscience originate? Man was created in the element of perfection, without any knowledge of right and wrong. When man fell and sinned against God, that knowledge of right and wrong created, I would like to say, a vacuum, if it were, but a a conscience within the individual which allows them to reason between right and wrong before God, discovering that in their fallen nature they lean towards wrong the majority of the times. They can do nothing right before God to save themselves. But they have that capacity. Adam and Eve did not have that capacity. They didn't have no need of it in their state of perfection. But after the state of perfection, that conscience was created. Paul picks up on that, especially in 1 Corinthians. You see it used so often. That realm of reasoning. Why? Because he was working in the city of Corinth, which was known for their philosophers, that wanted to reason within a person's conscience to discover right and wrong and then to act upon it. And Paul says, you're not going to even get there through the wisdom of man. It must be through the wisdom of God. 
This place of conscience, again, is a product of the fall. It is a place where we can know right and wrong. It is a place where our conscience then conforms to the norms. We as believers are going to be conformed to this world or are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Bible calls upon us to be transformed by the renewing of your mind into the image of Jesus Christ. Now that being said, if you go back to our text, you realize that the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is going to bring about this conviction in the conscience of man, is a promise given to the disciples themselves. So when it talks about, if you read with me here, in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. How this conviction works is very interesting. How the Holy Spirit works is very interesting. And it's often an element that is negated, I think, or neglected when this portion of Scripture is being taught. The Holy Spirit is given to you and I who are in Christ Jesus. We receive the Holy Spirit the moment we become Christians. Jesus is promising his disciples here that the Spirit of God was going to come to them, which he then fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, and they became witnesses throughout all the world. Now, of course, the apostles were the foundation of what was one, one day going to be called the church. Of course, Christ is the cornerstone, the teaching of the apostles, and then the church. The Holy Spirit, working through the body of Christ, the church, brings about the conviction in the world and reminds the world of the presence of God within it. Why? Because Jesus has gone away, right? So the Holy Spirit comes, fills the believer, and in that filling, the believer then becomes a reminder to the fallen world that Jesus Christ has come, died, and rose again. This is important because now this brings us into the conversation. Maybe you never knew that you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, were meant to be used this way as an instrument of God so that when you tell people about the Lord, when you talk about God, it is the Holy Spirit working in and through you, working in that person's life to bring about the change or the correction or the salvation that Christ has deemed for that individual. It is this presence that convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. For those in whom God is calling out of the world, this conviction becomes the first step of salvation for them. It was the first step in your process of salvation. It was a work of God in you, opening your eyes, opening your heart to the necessity and the reality, first and foremost, of convincing and persuading you of sin, finding you guilty, then convicting you, and finding you condemned before God in and of yourself with the weight of the wrath of God appending upon you, and then turning you to Christ and saying, here's God's answer. And the moment you came to Jesus Christ, the conviction of the Holy Spirit then began to work in your life in a different manner, keeping you from sin. Then once a believer with the Holy Spirit who dwells in them and continues in our conscience to indicate and to strengthen our resolve to sin that we may be witnesses for Jesus Christ. So let us look at the points of conviction now together. We've seen how conviction begins the process, but he points to three very specific points to which the Holy Spirit is going to work. 
Notice the terms that are used for the Spirit here at this point. First of all, realize before we go any farther that Christianity is the only religion in the world that promises such help. Every other religion in the world commits to the individual himself or herself the necessity of fulfilling the requirements of that deity in and of themselves. God said, the requirements that I have for you, you'll never be able to fulfill in and of yourself, so I'm going to give you help. And it's going to be the Spirit of God producing the fruit in you that you cannot produce in and of yourself. Changing you from the inside out. This is where Christianity stands apart. It's a work of God in your life, not a work of yourself in any way, shape, or form. As a reality of that, part of that work is the reminder and the convicting of sin going forward as you grow in the knowledge and the grace of your Savior, Jesus Christ. But he says here from the beginning, this helper will come. It is to our advantage that he does so, that Christ will send him to you, of course, that proving his deity and so forth, in Acts chapter 2, confirming that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And notice in verse 8, And when he comes, he will convict, as we have just discussed, the world concerning sin, point one, righteousness, point two, and judgment. Point one, when it comes to sin, and that in the Greek is in the singular. It's not sins plural, but sins singular. And that sin singular is found in this, because they do not believe in me. The ultimate work of sin in, the, in a person's life is the unbelief in God himself, in Jesus Christ himself. That is the ultimate work of sin in that person's life. As one wrote, unbelief is the crowning evidence that all are infected with the principle of sin or are in a state of sin. This does not mean that unbelief is the only sin for which the world is responsible, that somehow the atonement of Christ automatically covers all other sins. Considering John's purpose in writing to present Christ as the Son of God, the rejection of Him is the capital sin. Believing on Him is to believe on Him and to be saved and to be forgiven and to experience eternal life. So sin... The Holy Spirit is here to convict the world of sin, their unbelief in Jesus Christ. By doing that, of course, the Spirit of God working through the body of Christ brings about the reality of sin in that person's heart and mind, convicting them and then leading them unto God. And the second point is found here, when it talks about the necessity of righteousness. To be right before God is just not found in the absence of sin in that person's life. Often when someone talks about becoming a Christian, they're kind of one-dimensional. They've kind of got half of the story correct. How do you know that you're saved and going to heaven? Because Christ has forgiven me of my sins. That's a good start, right? That is a good start. But in actuality, if that was where it stayed or remained, it would bring you to a balance before God of zero, right? Thinking of every sin as a deficit to your balance before God, going into the negatives. The forgiveness of sin would only bring you back to zero, right? 
But zero is not enough to get into heaven, is it? Because not only are there sins of omission, where we do not do what we are supposed to do, and there are sins of commission where we do those things that we are not supposed to do, the forgiveness of sin alone isn't enough. There has to be the requirement or the acquisition of righteousness before God to bring us to that place of perfection to allow us into the kingdom of heaven. So where is that righteousness obtained? Since Christ forgave us of our sins, are, then, are we then responsible for our own righteousness before God by earning it through good works? Can we do that? Can we accomplish that, yes or no? No. Because we have to go from zero to perfection, and that's a huge number, and I'm not even going to try to articulate that for you. So how do we do that? Yes, God has forgiven us of our sins, that brought us to zero, but now He has righteous requirements. How do I fulfill that righteous requirement before God to allow me that state of perfection to be allowed into the kingdom of God? I can do nothing on that front either. The righteousness that I need and I am required to produce, I cannot produce in and of myself. And therefore, the righteousness that I depend upon is also found in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Not only did Christ forgive me of my sins by his atoning death on the cross, but he's then imputed to me, he has given to me his righteousness that has been validated and confirmed in his resurrection. So not only does Christ forgive me of my sins, but he also then gives me his righteousness that I may be be perfect before the Father. So if you'd like to put it this way, as a Christian, I am completely Christ-dependent, right? I'm not codependent, I'm Christ-dependent. Completely, for my salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the righteousness that he is speaking of here. It is not only a conviction of sin to bring us to that point of guilt and condemnation, but also understanding that there's a righteous standard. And the reason that point of conviction is here is because Jesus is no longer physically here on this earth. He says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So there's that point of conviction there also. As one wrote, this perfected righteousness with which the world needs has its crowning proof or demonstration in the fact that Christ rose from the dead and returned to the Father, showing that his righteousness was acceptable to God. Christ accepted by the Father is positive proof that righteousness is available and is only available in Christ Jesus for all of those convinced of sin. This acceptance by the Father establishes Christ as the absolute standard for all human righteousness. As Tenney once wrote, he said this, that the previously righteousness had been established by precept. Now it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. What was once established by the law is now established in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we are convicted of judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Though Satan is still active and involved in our world today, he is dethroned. 
And the return of Jesus Christ will complete what he began on the cross once and for all. And Satan will then be brought into a place of judgment, including all those who follow him. There is this belief today that if I don't believe in God and I do not subject myself to him and his son, Jesus Christ, I'm a free agent. I'm a free moral agent. I don't believe in God and therefore I'm not accountable to God. And therefore, I'm, again, a free moral agent. I'm in control of my own destiny and so forth. But the Bible paints a completely different picture. That the ruler of this world is Satan himself. And if you like to work in that misconception and that delusion and that deception in and of itself, and believing that you are your own, Satan is perfectly happy with that. Because in the end, destruction will reign. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is to allow individuals to know that Satan has been vanquished at the cross and we are no longer then subjected to him once we have come to our place of saving faith in Jesus Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit prior to our coming to salvation through the act of conviction that brings us to that place that we now accept Jesus as our Savior. But once we become a believer, the work of God does not stop. And conviction still continues. And we find that a believer is also convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, since not even the best Christian is free from sin in their practical form today, right? There's a war that rages on with inside of each and every one of us. A war that has demonstrated the flesh wanting it, what it wants and this new nature wanting what it wants and then you yielding yourself to one or the other. And throughout the New Testament, James, for example, reminds us of this conviction, this convicting when he says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Or as the author of Hebrews says, that the chastening of the Lord is that reserved only for his children and conviction is associated with that chastening, noting, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So we are still convicted by the moral law of the scriptures. And as we begin to venture off or be tempted, that conviction all all of a sudden begins within us. It's more than an emotion, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's an intellectual reasoning that sometimes is followed by emotion. But it demonstrates to us that where I am about to go is not right. Other places in the New Testament speak of that reproving action of conviction as it were in the Old Testament, where the Holy Spirit is then found behind all of that work, demonstrating that it is the Spirit of God that is reproving us, showing our wrong, showing us our our guilt, and then asking us to come to a place of restitution. But do you remember when I said originally that the Spirit came to convict the world of sin, and that sin demonstrated in unbelief? As a believer in Jesus Christ, when we fall into temptation and we embrace sin or we continue on in sin, do you realize that within those actions you are actually stating that you don't truly believe in God? Think about that for a moment. 
Because if I believe in God, then I'm going to avoid these things. But if I embrace them, if I continue in them, if I subject myself to them once again, am I not stating through my actions that I don't actually believe in Jesus? Can you have one without the other? Because a firm belief in Jesus Christ would demonstrate itself through my actions, demonstrating that I may change individual, and then that momentary lapse of faith, I should be able then to resist the temptation that has crept up either through the world itself or my own passions of my flesh, etc. I don't think many Christians realize that when they demonstrate their Christian faith in a life of sin, which is very difficult for me to embrace the fact that they are actually a Christian then. I ask the question, don't you think your life is demonstrating for all around you that you don't truly believe in God? You don't truly believe in Him. Because if you do, then you would be more conscious about what you have. I like what Roland McCune said. Christians are convicted of sins so that they are to enjoy fellowship with God. The world is convicted of the principles of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as to be saved. Forgiveness of a Christian is connected with the family, the father and child relationship. Forgiveness of an unbeliever is connected with a forensic relationship that is of judgment and criminal activity. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, this conviction moves within my heart to keep me in that close communion state with God which sin will remove me from. And though I may still be a Christian, in unrepented sin, I find myself feeling distant from God rather than close to Him. So how does God convict us as individuals and the world around us? The means of conviction are also necessary to understand if we're truly going to appreciate this whole aspect of conviction in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit uses what's, what we call special revelation to convict a human being. Now, because I say that there is special revelation, I say that there's also general revelation. There's revelation of God to the world around us that He exists, and that is creation itself. Creation itself is general revelation, and in creation they should see that a God exists. But Romans goes one step further that also in general revelation, meaning that we know that God exists, not nothing about him specifically, but know that he exists, is the conscience of the individual, which we talked about at the, at the beginning. That also, too, can be part of this general revelation. But when it comes to conviction, special revelation is needed. Though I can have a general understanding that God exists, it isn't until special revelation is given through the Word of God that conviction can truly be formed, right? Because the world around me is not enough to bring me to a place of conviction and in need of a Savior because it doesn't adequately address my personal sin. But special revelation does. And God uses His Word as a means to convict us of sin, and only in Scripture is found the revelation of the remedy of man's sin also, and his need and the availability of righteousness and of God's judgment. So it is the Word of God 
This special revelation from God means of conviction is to put various terms, put in various terms, but the idea is the same in every case. Let me give you those examples of some various terms that are used. The first term that we find in Ephesians 5.13 is this issue of light. Light is part of special revelation. When we began to see the light that Jesus Christ introduced into the world, we now began to, uh, what I would like to say, color in or to fill in the blanks of all of the questions that we had concerning God. Jesus said, I am the image of the Father. I'm the perfect representation of the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So the light in which he brought in and of himself gave indication to special revelation in what God's desire was for his creation. As Paul wrote, all things became visible when they are exposed to the light. The actions of Christ alone. Light exposing the darkness and those in darkness loving the darkness rather than coming to the light. Our lives as we live our faith out in our Christian values, is meant to be a light around us to those who are in darkness. They are to see Christ in us and his behavior within us and through us. That's what they need to see. Secondly, scriptures. The scriptures themselves. We know that Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And of course we are talking about here at this moment the Old Testament scriptures here in Acts 18.28 as Apollos is refuting the Jews at that point concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. So the scriptures, the light of the individual living out their Christian faith, the scriptures themselves, Old Testament, Prophesying, 1 Corinthians 14.24 states, But if all, prophecy, uh, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. So the word of revelation that was given to the early church through prophecy was also a means by which one could be convicted. Number four, the word itself. In 2 Timothy 4.2, when he was being instructed to preach the word, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to refute those who contradict. The word of God itself. These are all forms of special revelation that give us the basis for the conviction that can be found in God. The law itself as James 2.9 indicates that the law, the Old Testament law is still an indicator of what is sin. The Ten Commandments. Have you ever thought why the Ten Commandments are so offensive to so many that we have to rip them down from every public institution in America today? It's a reminder that not only there is there a moral standard that a God holds us to, but that there is a God altogether. All of these are means of special revelation that God used to convict us of sin. As we have our devotionals day by day, and I hope all of you take time every day to spend time in the Word of God. Let the Word of God be a light to you, shining in your own heart. And remember, our own heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And let that light shine. And when we find something that's unacceptable to God, pull it out into the open. 
saying, Lord, oh, I didn't realize that. I, forgive me of that, Lord. Change my heart. Give me the, the power that I need to change, Lord. Praying and seeking God on a daily basis. Another point can be as we interact with other people. Begin to speak up for your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't lie dormant. Don't think that your life alone, your life living alone is sufficient. That's a great start. Please, don't talk about the gospel if you're first not willing to live out the gospel. We don't need any more bad press. But if you're living out the gospel and you're kind of content to remain there, I don't really want to engage anybody verbally. I'm just going to live out my own faith and then maybe someday someone will say to me, oh, you are so different than everybody else. Uh, What's in you? Eventually, guys, you have to give a verbal explanation for what is in you, what has happened. I know that with my parents, it was imperative that they saw the work of God in me before they would listen to me verbally. I tried. Oh, the moment after I got saved, I was trying to evangelize my parents left and right. And they basically looked at me and laughed. Oh, this is just like the violin that you wanted to play. Oh, this is just like, you know, when you wanted to, uh, you know, uh, when you didn't know what you wanted to do as a kid, you were either going to be a pelican or an astronaut. You know, it's like, where are these things coming from? Your mom and dad, they remember everything about you. So coming home from church one day saying, I'm saved, I'm born again in Jesus Christ. Sure you are. God bless you. But after 15, 20 years, and they saw the difference, and they saw it in my marriage, and they saw it in my parenting, and they saw it in my own life, they couldn't refute it any longer. And they began to listen. And now they are responding. So there comes a time to live out your faith and also to speak on your faith, to allow that to be used as a vehicle of conviction for those who do not know the Lord who are around you. That is the way it is meant to play out. There are many in the body of Christ, though, that when speaking of the whole subject of conviction, they see it more as an emotional experience. And, and, and I, I, I'm afraid that when they minimize it to just an emotional experience, that the true effect of that experience is, is diminished greatly. Why? Emotions can run like a roller coaster, can't they? One, you know, one moment you're happy, the next minute you're sad, the next minute you're mad, the next minute you're happy again, and so forth. Emotions change, feelings change. Now we are a very, very feeling-centered society, culture. Feelings are now the basis of truth. Feelings are now the basis of decision. Feelings are now the basis of accuracy, etc. Rather than intellectual reasoning, in many cases. Many people make some of the most irrational decisions, life-changing decisions based upon feelings rather than intellectual rationale. I'm con- concerned that if we limit conviction only to an emotional response that so many seem to do today that we minimize its effect within our lives. There has to be an intellectual reasoning within that conviction. 
As one wrote, he says, Conviction is an operation of the Holy Spirit on the minds of the sinner, which proves to him the truth of his sins, Christ's righteousness, and God's eternal judgment. There is nothing technically emotional about conviction in and of itself, though emotions may follow convictions or a result from convictions, but it is not itself an aspect of conviction. In short, conviction is an intellectual phenomena and not an emotional one. God asks us to use our mind, to use our thinking, and once we come to that knowledge through rational means, we then must act upon it. One of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, Louis Speary Schaefer, wrote this, Conviction represents in general the process by whereby one is caused to reach certain conclusions or impressions in his mind. Too often it is assumed that this approach is through the emotions and that conviction consists in a spiritual depression or sorrow of sin. It is rather to be observed that the emotion which may arise in, its, in the hearts is itself due to conviction, a convinced state of mind, and is not the convinced state of mind in and of itself. Meaning that the emotion doesn't bring about the conclusion in and of itself. How many times have you done something wrong and been emotional about it? I gotta be honest with you, I remember the first time I ripped off a store. It's had such a lasting impression upon me. I became a deviant very early on in life. I was at the drugstore with my father and I desperately wanted this pack of baseball cards. And the reason I wanted it is because my favorite player at the time was on the very front of a Dave Kingman. Some of you might have remembered him. I'm really dating myself now. And my dad, of course, being the great spender that he was, said no. And of course, me being the obedient son that I was, said, okay, fine. I'll just take it. So I grabbed the baseball cards with the gum, put it in my pocket, and I walked out of the drugstore. And as we were driving home, I was in the back seat. My dad was in the front. And those baseball cards were like kryptonite to Superman. They were just calling out to me like, what have you done? You're going to go to jail. You're going to be thrown, and my dad used, to word, used this word all the time, in the pokey. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm, that's it. My life is over. I haven't even gotten out of kindergarten. I'm done. I'm going to be on the side of a milk carton in a post office wanted. So I began doing what every young man would do at that. I cried like a little girl in the back of that car. And my dad goes, what the heck is wrong with you? And then I pulled out the cards and I showed him. And he goes, that's it. My dad being the encouraging man, he goes, you're going to jail. <laughs> now I'm really scared. Drives me back to the drugstore. Has me confess what I have done. Give the cards back to him. And the very first thing out of the, the druggist was, do you know I could call the cops and have you thrown in jail? I mean, okay, I mean, I, I'm gone at this point now. I mean, I, I, I'm just waiting, you know, for the, for the last walk and so forth. I'm done. Now, you would think that that emotional experience in and of itself would have curbed my stealing, wouldn't it? No, it didn't. We won't go on any further than that. 
Though I had all these emotions and I had all this remorse and I felt all of this guilt, I still didn't change. And so often that's what happens when an individual becomes emotional over a situation. They regret the consequences of their action. They have a bit of remorse, but they're not truly repentive. Because emotions in and of itself are not sufficient to bring a person to that amount. It has to be something that is infected and engraved on the mind and the heart of that individual saying, no, I can't go back there. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes into play in the person's life. So conviction cannot be summed up in emotions alone. It must be a work of the Spirit of God into the intellect of the individual and rationale in that way. And then it may lead to emotions. It may lead to sorrow. It may lead to sadness. But it will always lead to repentance. Now that being said, I want to conclude on this point. And I'd like all of you to look up if, if I can have you do that. This is important. As a pastor for almost 19 years now, I have discovered that often when an individual does sin before God and they begin to be convicted in their heart and that conviction can often be very heavy, that chastening can often be very drastic as God chastens the individual in whom he loves because he loves them so much uh, he can't leave them the way he found them. They interpret that as condemnation before God. And that God wants nothing to do with me anymore. I have blown it so badly that yes, I came to him, I was living as a Christian, but now what I have done, there is no restoration for. God now has condemned me once again and there is no recourse, there is no uh, return, there is no repentance for me. I want to tell you this morning that if you struggle with thoughts as such, I want to tell you that God does not use condemnation in the life of the believer. That condemnation, meaning the finality of utter death for all eternity, that fear that should be raised in the heart of the unbeliever, he does not raise in your heart as an instrument of correction. Because he loves you, you are now his child and he chastens you and he wants to, he does so for your betterment. He does not cast you out in such regard that condemnation and that fear of condemnation should grip your heart so much that it isolates you from God rather than causing you to return to God. Over the years I have heard so many tell me, don't you understand, God is punishing me for my sins. They say this as a believer in Jesus Christ. See, I don't believe that God punishes the believer. I believe that God chastens the believer. It's completely different. The act of punishment, the act of complete condemnation will be discovered by those who have rejected Jesus Christ and who find themselves standing before that great white throne judgment. The books are open, the book of life. They're not found written in there. All their deeds are found written in there. And then they are condemned. There is no salvation for them. Remember these words. John three seventeen through 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, listen to me now closely, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he is, has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I love what Spurgeon said, and I want you to listen to these words. God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins, he states. 
God has punished them already in the person of Christ, their substitute. But yet, while the Christian cannot be condemned, he can be chastened. Punishment is laid on a man in anger. God strikes him in wrath. But when he afflicts his children, chastisement is applied in love. The rod has been baptized in deep affection before it is laid on the believer's back. God uses conviction in the life of the believer, in the chastement of the believer, to bring the believer back to God again. As Paul wrote, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and ends that same chapter by stating this, who is condemned? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? For who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? It is Christ. So if you have sinned, and you have allowed that condemnation to grip your heart, not thinking you could ever come back to God, I tell you this morning, that is not God, that is the enemy. For condemnation always isolates an individual from God and leads to separation from God, whereas conviction always leads to restoration and the sanctification of the believer in God. For there is no, now no, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are to avoid sin and sin no more, we must be convinced first that we no longer have to sin. We need not sin. But we also must be convicted that the work that the Holy Spirit began in us that led us to Jesus Christ continues in us this day, alerting us and warning us of wrong action before that action takes place. And if we fall into that action, the conviction of God is there to draw us back to God once again that we may be alleviated of that conviction and that chastisement and find grace once again in the forgiveness of God, which that grace abounds when sin is present. It is the grace of God. For that shall lead us to sin no more if we are convinced and are convicted.